Well, today we're going to look at uh, relational intelligence. Relational intelligence is the modern psychobabble that we find in this whole area of playing to win. Now, I don't say that in a derogatory term because uh, over the last 20 years, the psychologists have become involved with sports teams. And that has meant that there's a whole lot more now to building a team rather than just getting them fit and having a strategy to win the game. In fact, the psychologists and those who look after the mental well-being of, of top elite players and teams and athletes, they are deemed to be the point of difference that happens in the life of any sporting team these days. And uh, the All Blacks, who won last night, as we know, um, yeah, um, they have been really specialising in this over the last couple of decades. It was very unusual to hear last year the head coach, Steve Hansen, talk about the team, and believe it or not, he used the L word. You know what he said about them? He said, I love those guys. And we're going, you're kidding me. The nation is now lost. It's all over. How can an all-black coach talk about loving them? But he was sincere about that. What he was saying is we're a big family, we're a community, and we are intent on looking after each other's well-being, not just for the sake of the game, but for the sake of maturing people into, in this case, fine young men, fine young citizens. But for us as a, um, as a community, looking at this, this question about relational intelligence, we're actually asking the question, can I just see if this is happening, Bernie? There we go. Relational intelligence. Um, what we're looking for is, from Scripture, how it is that relational intelligence made a huge difference to the way that Jesus and a lot of the other key characters in Scripture actually managed to work their relationships with other people. You see, relational intelligence is not something that you can actually learn through a book. You can't get a qualification in it. It is something that you work on through life. And uh, some people are better at it than others. It's just simply one of those facts of life. Now, I don't know about you, but um, we possibly have all made the odd mistake when it comes to relational intelligence. Um, some of the probably the most notable ones will be, um, let me suggest, would be um, talking to a woman and going, um, when's, when's the baby due? Uh, has any of you ever made that mistake? Yeah? Ooh. You only ever do that once, don't you? Eh? That look is almost a little bit like that uh, some comic book character, those laser eyes come out at you and you melt into a blob of embarrassment. Uh, but something probably a little bit more up to date is because um, women are often having children later in life. Uh, is, this, um, is this your grandchild that you have with you? Um, again, not, not good, not good. Uh, so we, we learn, don't we, as we go on. Uh, so relational intelligence is something that we always need to be aware of when we're having a conversation. And so what I'm going to do today is take us through some little interactions that Jesus had, and then some of the, as I say, the more high-profile people in Scripture, and we can learn from them, learn what to do and what not to do. So let's have a look at how Jesus interacted uh, with the Pharisees over a very delicate situation that he found himself in. It says here, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, that's Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Okay, so it's a trap. Because if Jesus says, yep, pay the taxes to Caesar, he'll be deemed to be siding with the Romans. Okay, and if he says, no, don't pay the tax, they'll soon tell the Romans and Jesus will be in trouble with the Romans. So he's caught in this quandary. It's not the first time and it's certainly not the only time that the Pharisees try to set him up this way. But, uh, you know, Jesus is asked about a question about this imperial tax. Now, the thing about the imperial tax is that this tax was tribute, essentially, that was paid by all people who were under Roman occupation. Essentially, it was an insult tax. Imperial tax was a tax that was taken maybe only 1% to 3%, they suggest, of a person's income, but it was set aside specifically for the extension of the Roman Empire to pay for their armies and to build the roads upon which their armies would travel. Probably a little bit like petrol tax today, if you come to think about it, Uh, but we won't go there. Um, But here is this insult tax. And so Jesus is now caught with this question. And most of us will know how this ends up, but it's a very, very clever answer. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they bought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. They were amazed and would have been devastated at the same time because Jesus didn't take the bait. But this is a great example of high-level emotional IQ or relational intelligence. Emotional IQ and relational intelligence are essentially the same thing. But what Jesus is demonstrating here is the ability to navigate through a problem and not leaving himself exposed. And this is the challenge that we all face at times when we're in a conversation and somehow we find ourselves being drilled down upon to corner us and the ability to be able to take ourselves out of that situation and create a different scenario out of a conversation is high-level relational intelligence. Often what we learn the hard way by our mistakes. And uh, it can be a real challenge. But let's have a look now at low-level relational intelligence or emotional IQ. Okay? But we can understand where this comes from. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, that's Jesus again, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Well, uh, I don't know how Jesus handled this, you know, because here we are in a scenario where the opening part of that text says, uh, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. We're talking towards the end of his ministry. He's already spent three years with these guys. He's probably on that last six-month home stretch. And James and John, the brothers James and John, who are called the Sons of Thunder, that was their nickname, Sons of Thunder. You can sort of see why. Thundering around everywhere like a couple of bull elephants. They're like, they didn't want us, Jesus, they didn't want us there. Let's just call down fire from heaven and waste them. Well, you can argue what great faith they've got. 
You know what, tremendous faith. But the commentary about Jesus' response to them is so small, you can almost read into it the, the disappointment and the dissatisfaction that he had, eh? It's so like he rebuked them and then he just went on to the next village. You know, it'd be like, oh my goodness, who do I get to work with? You know? Low-level relational intelligence. Yeah, it's the old story. If you only own a hammer, everything is a nail. Okay, you've only got one answer to everything. All right, in this case, let's just waste them. So relational intelligence is or are skills like awareness, empathy, understanding others' perspective, and managing our own emotions. So you're asking yourself when you go into a room, what's the temperature in the room? Now, you've all done this to some degree. You walk in, and you walk in, in the room, and you go, something's going on here. No one said a word, but the hairs on the back of your neck go up, and you go, there's a bit of tension in the room. Yeah? Or the opposite, you walk in, and you go, yeah, there's a party going on here. What's, what's, what's the source of all the joy? You know, so those things are, are quite simple, but then there are times when you're having conversations with people, and you're talking to them, and you're going, we're having this conversation, but I think you're trying to have this conversation. Yeah? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. <laughs> I hope most of you do. <laughs> and, and so you're discerning about what it is that's actually happening. One of the big things about this is that relational intelligence means that you've got to lean in and listen more than you speak. You know, two ears, one mouth, same thing we tell our kids. doesn't change when you get older. Okay? Two ears, one mouth. But the big picture in all of this is that you have to have some responsibility for your own emotional input into any given conversation. You see, one of the things that we notice about children, little children, is they are driven by their feelings, and those feelings drive their emotions, and that's essentially all that you see. If the child's happy, it's got smiles on its face. If it's unhappy, it's crying and it's whinging. That's all there is. It's purely driven by its feelings and its emotions. As we get older, the goal is to be able to separate ourselves, have a little bit more objectivity, and we get on with the task in hand, and we can separate those distinctions in our lives. It's fair to say, isn't it? We all do that. Um, but one of the things that Peter Schizero said, who wrote a book, a very popular book called Emotionally, Emotionally Healthy Church, said this. He said, you cannot become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature, okay? So you can't have a really distinct, a really distinct spiritual maturity going on when you throw your toys out of the cot when things don't go your way. Okay, so these things he's saying are tied in together. And you can't have the reactions that just fly off the handle or, or the opposite is you sulk and you play no speaks, okay? That's a good game. Or um, you're the smoldering volcano, and people can just see you slowly going redder and redder, and then you blow up. I read a biography from about a lady one time who described her husband, uh, sorry, her, her father, who was a pastor. This woman was a missionary. And uh, she said, we knew when dad was smoldering, and he'd always make sure that he never took his uh, anger out on anybody. And so his trick was to pull the pot plant out of the pot and stick it on the, on the coffee table. And that was his declaration that he was upset. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating for this. <laughs> she said the good thing about it is that every six months, 
the pot plant got repotted and refertilized. <laughs> but some people are smolderers, some people are little volcanoes. Uh, or, worst case scenario, people are bullies. It can be bullies with their emotional or relational identity. And this is where the challenge comes in. Now, one of the things about church life is that um, we are all very vulnerable in church to these feelings of emotion and spirituality that can all be so intermixed that they end up creating quite a confusion in the life of our, in our lives, be them large or small, be them small groups or big groups. And the challenge that we face, because we're dealing with our physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being in the life of the church, is that these things are all integrated. I've had scenarios where people come to me and they say, oh, church just doesn't do it for me anymore. I've had it, you know, and I'm, I'm over it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then we sit down to talk and you find that uh, the husband's unemployed, the kids are sick, the house is halfway through a renovation, uh, money is low, the dog's only got three legs left, and it's church that's the problem. You go, hmm, you know what, I think church is the easy target. Let's put all these things into perspective. By the time you turn up to church on Sunday, you shouldn't actually be sitting here listening to my talk. We should set up a cot for you out the back and give you two hours sleep. Now, some of you specialize in sleeping with your eyes open, I know that. So it's, it's okay, it's all right. I know, I know who you are, I know who you are. You're the ones who just didn't laugh then, because you're asleep. <laughs> okay, let's have a look. Let's have a look at how Jesus moves a conversation from the way that a woman wants to take it downward, and Jesus lifts it up. This again, a story you'll know well. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, this is Jesus in Samaritan uh, in Samaria, obviously. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her. Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now you can see here that this woman um, is intimidating Jesus. She's on her turf. It's her well. It's a Samaritan well. And so when Jesus asks her for a drink, which is contrary to the culture, because A, she's a woman, and B, she's a Samaritan woman, um, this, is con this contradicts all the social engagement rules. And so she feels it's her opportunity now to take advantage of that and push back on him. But Jesus isn't going to have this. So he moves the conversation from water, literal water, to living water. He takes the conversation up into a spiritual realm. And thereby, what he does is he ignores, he ignores the insult and ignores the intimidation. Okay? So it's very clever. And then the conversation takes exactly the same process, but with a different subject matter in hand. We see this, how it happens again. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now again, the woman, she's quite sassy actually. 
She's really sort of bringing it to Jesus in a way that could intimidate somebody with lesser relational uh, intelligence. Because the conversation, she's trying to drive it down, drive it towards an argument. Jesus is lifting it up. Ultimately, we're not going to look at it today, but it gets to the point where the woman stops and says, I've got to go into the village and tell people about you because you know everything about me. Okay? Now, it's kind of handy at that point when you're God. Okay? So, but this early stage of it, we can see the woman raising the conversation, keeping it out. Sorry, Jesus raises the conversation, keeping it out of the argument. All right? Um, Last week, I talked about the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Um, Self-control is one of the most challenging of the fruit of the Spirit, aren't they? You know, because you break out of self-control when you often don't expect to. It can be a time when you're at wit's end or something frightens you, scares you. You know, the things that come out of your mouth when the truck pulls in front of you? You say, oh, Lord, bless them. (laughs) Don't you? I know that. Lord, bless them. One of the things that uh, is true for church life is that we can end up hurting each other very, very easily. Over the last few years, I've been involved with uh, churches that have hurt each other. And it's really, really sad to see the damage that can be done as people engage in inappropriate behaviors or just behaviors that lack relational intelligence. Um, There wasn't so long ago, I heard a story of a, a church eldership that got together and pulled the church together, and they said, we really want to help the pastoral team here. So what I'm going to do, they said, is we're going to give you all of these post-it notes, and we want you to make suggestions as to what it is the pastors should do, are doing wrong, or could do better. Okay, and pin them up against the wall. I talked to that pastor the day after, and I said, are you going to get through it? And he says, I don't know. He said, my youth pastor's already quit. And and he rang me back the following Saturday, and he said, tomorrow I'm handing in my resignation. Lack of intelligence, you know? One of the things about any review of any sort is that it needs to be filtered and interpreted by people who understand how to do these things properly. You know, there was was every suggestion under the sun, from the the color of his shirt to the the way his haircut was done, and it just went on and on and on. Uh, in saying that, pastors aren't immune from doing dumb things either. It wasn't so long ago, I heard a story, it was a few years ago now actually, of a pastor who was told that he preached too long by his deacons. So the next Sunday, he turns up in the pulpit and he puts an alarm clock on the pulpit, and when the alarm went off, he just walks off. <laughs> Halfway through his talk, well, no, maybe three quarters of the way through the talk. Now, that's not very clever either, is it? That doesn't help the situation. So it's very easy to upset one another and we have to be very careful how we engage in our relationships with one another, preferring the highest. So what it means for us is that we have to be playing, playing to win means that we have to be working on our, on our soft skills. Um, you know, we can learn technical skills quite easily, can't we? 
you go to university or you go to trade school or wherever it might be that you learn and you learn the technical skills. We've heard of uh, terms like bedside manner, um, talking about doctors here. And we've all had those great experiences when we go into a doctor's office and um, they look at us with compassion. You know, they lean in and they say, hey, look, last time I saw you, you were dealing with this. How's that going? And you go, oh, well, you, you know, you remember. Well, they've got the notes anyway. At least they're using them well. Um, and, and the, you know, it might be a, just somebody who holds your hand and says, look, I know it's a tough time for you. That's bedside manner, and that is worth more than anything else in that moment because everybody remembers how somebody makes them feel, even if they're carrying difficult news. If they can see that there's a real uh, sympathy, empathy, and compassion there, it makes all the difference in the world, even if somebody's bearing you difficult news. Um, but we've all probably all been to the doctor too, where you, you walk in and he just looks at you like sort of a collection of body parts, and uh, he looks at you, as long as your knee bone's connected to your thigh bone, you know, you must be doing okay. Uh, you know, these are the things that we know are soft skills that might be something you struggle with, but they can be worked upon. I saw it when I went through Baptist College. If you got an A every time you put an essay in, it didn't guarantee that you were going to be the best pastor in the world. Okay? Because... Unless that A could translate into the empathy that I'm talking about, um, you would, your A was not worth anything. It's the old story. I don't care how much you know until I know how much you care. And, uh, you know, God uses all sorts of people, and you don't have to be top of the shelf academically to be at the best, sorry, to be the best at your game. I'm sure you understand what I mean by that. So, Let's have a quick look now at some of these things that define relational intelligence. Relational intelligence means that you're curious about people. Now, when I say curious about people, I'm not talking about nosy. Okay, I'm going to say, John, how old are you, mate, and how much do you earn? How long have you been married? How old are your kids? Are they doing all right? How much do they earn? <laughs> That's just being nosy, isn't it? You know? It's just being nosy. But to talk to somebody and go, hey, what are you doing with yourself this week? Uh, what, what are your interests? I've done this numerous times, numerous times on a plane. You know, when I sort of got nothing to read and my iPads died or whatever, I actually talked to people. Which, <laughs> it's quite a modern phenomenon these days, really, to have a conversation. But when I do that, my intention is to see how long I can get the person talking for. So I'm asking open-ended questions. And sometimes you can sit on the plane for an hour, an hour and a half, you don't say anything, these guys just offload their whole life. They get off the plane, they say, man, that was the best conversation I've had for a long time. Thanks so much. They won't even know my name. <laughs> but I've almost been written into their will. You know, it's, it's, um, it's the sort of thing you can do to make people feel at, at their best with you and safe with you. So you're always looking at putting yourself in their position. Uh, you need to also know your own strengths and weaknesses. If you don't know your own strengths and weaknesses, there'll always be someone to help you, all right? Uh, particularly the weaknesses thing. But you need to understand your own strengths and weaknesses. It's really important. Otherwise, you just spend all of your time doing the wrong thing. Uh, not, you need to be a person who doesn't get offended easily. And we'll come back and look at that a little bit more. Um, you forgive generously, which is pretty similar to what 
not being offended easily is all about. Uh, you move on from mistakes. The big picture is really important to you. Um, perfection is not important. Okay? Now, if you're a surgeon, just ignore that comment. <laughs> it's not for you, okay? We, we want you to be perfect, okay? Um, but sometimes relationships die because people are looking for or demanding perfection from others, and it kills the relationship and it kills the heart of the person who's actually trying to help do the job. Um, you need to stop negative self-talk, you know? It's not going to help any situation if you walk into a room of people and the first thing that goes into your head is, I don't deserve to be here, I'm a loser. You know, you're the one standing in the corner and no one wants to talk to you because you, you look like you've got the sad disease and it's going to be catchy. Um, don't let others rob you of your joy, okay? And probably tied into that, well, it is actually, tied into that is your identity is in Christ. Your identity is not the sum total of what others think of you. Because at any given day, people will think poorly of you or think mightily of you. It's just the way life rolls from time to time. Okay, so you need to make sure that you're strongly in Christ to ensure that your identity is one of confidence and, and humility at the same time, of love and seeking others and their well-being. Right, I'm going to uh, wind this out now by talking about two people from Scripture who I think display really, really good relational intelligence. I'm going to go back to the early part of Jesus' ministry in John's Gospel, chapter 3, where a guy who was very authoritative, very high up in the uh, Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisaic uh, leadership council, and he sought out Jesus. Now, let me explain this to you. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Now, this story goes on. It goes on to those famous words, you know, unless a man be born again, and then goes on even further to say, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Really powerful words. But the setting of this is really vital to understand. Nicodemus was a very authoritative figure. Okay, so he normally would have a crowd following him of younger disciples. And so what he does is he goes and seeks out Jesus at night. I've heard this preached before. It said that Nicodemus was scared. I doubt he was scared. I think he was being wise. By seeking out Jesus at night, he was avoiding the crowd. And then by avoiding the crowd, he could have a decent conversation with Jesus without being interrupted or without being misinterpreted. And so he does something here where he names the obvious. He says, surely God must be with you because of the miraculous things that you were doing. And, uh, and no one could perform these, these great signs if God was not with you. So what Nicodemus is doing is before Jesus even announces how we deal with conflict in Matthew 18, he's actually acting in the same spirit. He's going to Jesus one-on-one -on -one to have this conversation with Jesus. Nicodemus knows his own authority and he knows that if he does this sort of questioning in public, it's probably going to cause a stir which would upset Jesus and upset himself. So I think this is a very intelligent approach by Nicodemus. It's a very emotional and relationally intelligent approach to deal with a problem. And if you've got a scenario that you're working through at the moment, maybe the best thing for you to do is go at night maybe, 
call on somebody, have a coffee, and say, look, this is what I observe. Can you, can you help me understand? And you'll find that all of these Pharisaic leaders always lead with questions. They always open a conversation with a question. And within Judaism, even to this day, scholars are celebrated for the quality of their questions, not the quality of their answers. Okay? Quality of their questions. Because the better question that you can ask, the better answer you will ultimately get. So here is uh, Nicodemus leading with questions. Now, I want to take us now to the beginning of the early church, where there's another chap who appears. He's from the same category as Nicodemus, a wise chap who once again had the authority and the mana, the spiritual mana within his community. What had happened is the disciples were preaching and they got themselves in trouble and they were thrown in jail to appear before the Sanhedrin the next day. Overnight, the jailers sprung miraculously and the disciples go out and start preaching at the temple again. They go looking for them to take them to the court. They're not there. They find them preaching around the temple and they bring them back in front of the Sanhedrin. And there's a real problem now. What do we do with these disciples? When they heard this, they were furious. This is the Sanhedrin. And wanted to put them to death. If you only own a hammer, everything's a nail. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, Leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That's wise, isn't it? Really, really wise, you know? Often in Scripture we want to think all the Pharisees are bad fellows and being bad, you're dumb. Uh, and all the disciples being super brainy and super anointed and super everything. But here we've got Gamaliel, who is clearly a man with a lot of experience under his belt. He's referring to a couple of revolts that had happened, one led by Feudus and another one led by a guy called Judas. And what he's describing is the bigger picture of what has happened throughout history. He's already asked for the disciples to be taken outside, so he's taken the heat out of the room. He's stood up, he's taken authority. And he's saying, listen, let me tell you the big picture here. The big picture is God is in control. And if we find ourselves fighting these people when God is with them, ultimately we'll be fighting against God. So what Gamaliel does is he appeals to their highest cause. He appeals to their highest sense of propriety. And that is, we are for God, not against him. So let's just give this thing a little bit of space, let these people go, and we'll see what happens. 
Now that takes an enormous amount of maturity, an enormous amount of courage, and a high level of relational intelligence. And you can see what I mean by that, can't you? So for us, when we're looking at what we can do to bring God's wisdom into any scenario, particularly conflict scenario, we've got to put ourselves in that place of Gamaliel and we say, what's the wisest thing we can do here? What's the, what's the biggest picture we can hold here? You know, sometimes there can be a family feud, a family conflict, and you know, maybe the matriarch or the patriarch of the family stands up and says, hey, 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 we're family. Now, we know we disagree with one another at times, but we're the only family that we've got. You can't buy another one in the shop. You can't get another one from the neighbor. We are the only family we've got. And I know that our parents and our grandparents would love us to resolve this. Eh? How, many, how many family arguments would be broken up by that sort of simple conversation? Taking the bigger picture and saying, hey, 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 let's just take a step back from the immediacy of this heated scenario and put it out there in a way that allows people to see the bigger picture. Relational intelligence um, is something we can learn. It's something that we can grow in. But it means that we've got to be acutely aware of our own emotional stability. It means that we've got to be confident in who we are in Christ so that we don't react when people have a go at us. We step back and we go, oh, 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 that's not who I am. I know who I am. And that tirade of words is nothing about me. It says more about you. And so now we can talk from the perspective of the bigger picture. So I want to finish there with this uh, slogan, play to win, and realize that around your lunch table today, this is a conversation that you could have with any person in your family. Uh, it's a conversation that you could have that reflects upon some events that you might have been having in your life recently. Uh, it's certainly important, when I say family, about talking to um, children and teenagers about how they deal with the conversations and the intimidations that they face in their own school environments. That's vitally important. And the sooner we learn and teach our kids to take that step back and see the bigger picture of what's going on, we'll actually equip them to be able to deal with the things that come at them in life. Let's stand together. Father, we, um, we thank you that within Scripture we see examples of people who have really matured their faith and uh, things like self-control become something as a goal. We see James and John, the sons of thunder, and we go, yep, I've been there and done that. Um, it's so easy just to erupt. And yet here we find people like Gamaliel who in their wisdom take that step back and go, Wow, what's the big picture here? And whom are we really for and who are we really fighting? Lord, these things are really important to us and they're easy to talk about here in this context where it's safe and it's relatively emotion-free. But we just need that prompting of your spirit, Lord, to remind us in difficult times of what it is that we can and should be doing. To be able to take lessons from Jesus who took a conversation that was spiraling down and took it up 
from Gamaliel who uh, knew that there was violence on the, on the horizon, but he, he, he took the conversation up. From Nicodemus who, instead of asking questions in a public setting, talked to Jesus privately to allow the conversation to grow up. And that's us, Lord. We want to be able to do these things. And we want to be able to do them well so that when, when we play, when we are out there doing life, we can play to win. So, Lord, guide us, help us through our conversations that even today we might be encouraged to have. And help us, Lord, to understand the bigger picture that you're building into our lives where we can learn what it means to follow Jesus and to see the world as he sees it. So we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.